welcome to Hillcrest Chapel Audio. We hope today's message will help you grow. Carlo, thank you, friend. Um, I, uh, a couple random things as you were doing all those fun announcements. If you want any of those things, if you want more information or sign up, just look in your bulletin. Like there's a Sikkim sign up on the insert. There's 412 information on the insert. There's a RSVP for the women's breakfast in the bulletin. So just to, get pl- to sign up for any of those things, look in your bulletin. That's how you get um, signed up. So my name is Tim, and I get the privilege of serving on uh, pastoral staff here and get to teach on a regular basis. And today we're starting a new teaching series called Creed. And we're going to be looking at this thing called the Apostles' Creed. And one of the seat back pockets in front of you, there should be a bookmark. It looks like this. There should be enough for everybody to have one. So if you could grab that, pull it out, take it home with you. And on the back is the text of the Apostles' Creed. I'd encourage you just have this in front of you this morning. You can be looking over it. And what our hope is, is that everyone would stick this in your Bible or a notebook or a, a, probably not like your car window. You should be focused on the road, but somewhere that you see on a regular basis that we, over the coming months, as we study this creed, that we would be memorizing this as a community. We, uh, we want this to kind of be internal. So I would encourage you to memorize this. Our kids down in Treasureland, they're going to be memorizing it. And so, I mean, grown-ups, we got to keep up there, right? So let's be working on this together. We'll be memorizing the text of the Apostles' Creed together. So to begin with, um, I just want to talk a little by way of introduction as we start this new series. What is the Apostles' Creed and why would we be looking at it? over the next couple of months. So imagine, if you will, the early, the early church, the early Jesus movement, about a century after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the mid-second century AD. And the, the early church, it's, it's still this fledgling movement. Uh, there's these sporadic persecutions by the Roman Empire. The general Mediterranean society looks down with disdain on this Jesus movement still. And what's beginning to happen is there's, there's like hangers on at the edge of the Jesus movement. They're interested in Jesus. They see the power of it, but they, they want to kind of change it. And, 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 and just change it to fit their tastes. And so um, what people will do is they kind of take, they'll take and kind of cherry pick the parts of the Jesus story they like, and then they'll mix it with uh, Greek philosophy and kind of create their own version of Christianity, this distorted version of Christianity. And um, there's, there's a di- different people did this in different ways, but they kind of have this general heading called Gnosticism. And this is uh, Gnosticism. Has anybody heard that term before? You spell it with the silent G. It's Gnostic, but it's not it's silent, so it's Gnostic. But, um, but these Gnostics, they, would, they distort Christianity, and they did different things with it, but there's some general uh, patterns. Namely, that they always said that physical materiality, stuff, is evil. Okay? They'd say stuff is evil, therefore, the God of the Old Testament who made this stuff must be bad. Therefore, the, the, the story of Jesus taking on a real human body, that, that's not true. That was an illusion. And therefore, the hope that we are resurrected in a, in a renewed heavens and earth, 
That can't be true. Actually, we need to escape to this ultra super spiritual plane. That's the goal. But anyways, so these Gnostics, they, they're, taking, they're distorting kind of at the edges of the Jesus movement. And so um, think, now if you're a leader in the early Jesus movement, you're, 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 it's a small movement, there's pressure from the government, and um, people are changing. What do you, how do you respond to that? How would you, as a leader in this movement, respond to this? So what, what these early Jesus, what these leaders, these early church leaders did, what they did is they appealed to something they called the rule of faith. The, in Latin, it's the regula fide. And the rule of faith was, is simply this. They said, they said, look, we need to start, you can't, they, they said to these Gnostics, you can't just cherry pick the parts of the Jesus story you want, run off by yourself, mix it with your pet philosophy and call it Christianity. They're like, it doesn't work that way. They said, you have to start with the rule of faith, which is the common core, the common core of belief that all churches around the world and all the churches since the time of Jesus have agreed upon. They, they said, look, there, we know that there's stuff we, do, we don't see to eye on. There's things we disagree about. But there's this common core about God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus' his son who was born, died, and resurrected, of the Holy Spirit. They said there's this common core. That's what you have to start with. And so this, this regular fide, this rule of faith, it was this common core belief. And this rule of faith is what eventually becomes what we call the apostles' Creed. The early church used it in baptisms because they wanted, they wanted um, new followers of Jesus to be educated in this. And so these, were, like when somebody was baptized, these would be questions. They said, do you believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son? He was died, born, born, died, and resurrected. And these would be baptismal questions. They're, they're trying to shape the next generation to understand this common core belief. And so even when you, if you look through it, you'll notice there's a lot of like, physicality language in here because it, it was shaped with this, this response to the Gnostics. God, the maker of things. Jesus had a real body. The hope is the resurrection. It's this response to these, these super spiritual Gnostics. So this, that rule of faith that eventually, these baptismal questions, eventually becomes kind of codified in what we call the Apostles' Creed because what happened was, even after this threat of Gnosticism passed, churches throughout time said, this common core of faith is really valuable and helpful. They said it's really valuable to have this, hey, this is our common core that we agree upon and to keep coming back to this and passing it on to the next generation. And so this this Apostles' Creed that you have in front of you, followers of Jesus have said this year after year after year after year for centuries this is the name of the God in whom we trust. And, and as, I, as I reflect on that, I find that moving. When I think about, I think about Jesus followers in Africa in the 200s, or Jesus followers in Ireland in the 500s, or in France in the 1000s, or in China today, saying these words, this is the name of the God in whom I trust. I find it moving, the, the, the vision of these early Jesus, these early church leaders, the vision that they said, we want to we we respect the faith that has been passed on to us, and we want to have a vision to pass it on for generations to come. I, so often, I mean, we live 
in the age of now, right? The age of what counts is right now. Right now is the most exciting thing ever. And tomorrow, that right now will be the most exciting thing ever, right? Don't we? I mean, we can agree upon this is the age we live on. And, and, and I mean, even like the country that we live in, the United States of America, it's what, 250 years old-ish, something like that? When, when we come here, when we come and we say these words, we worship this God, we are part of a l- continuous living community, a continuous movement stretching back over 4,000 years. The, peop- the Jewish people of God saying, this is the God who rescued us. These are the scriptures that testify to his words. Tell the next generation. The Ju- then Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the, and including the Gentiles into this, this kingdom community, and then generation after generation of this kingdom community saying, this is the God who has revealed himself to us. This is a God who has revealed himself to our fathers and mothers, revealed himself to us, and this is the God in whom we trust that we want to pass on to the next generation. I find that this rootedness, I find it stirring. Because so often, like, how would I say it? Well, I just say simply this, like, be, keep your eyes out for versions of Christianity that, are, that, 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 that d- disregard those who have come before us and have no vision for those who come after us, right? Be, be, be wary of, because there's versions of Christianity that's, that it's like, we just came up with this Jesus thing, and, you know, we're, all that matters is the new exciting thing. What we see in the creed is that these, these early Jesus leaders, they said, we want to respect the faith that has been passed on to us, the name of this God in whom we trust, and we want to have a vision to pass it on for generation after generation after generation to come. It roots us. And it's like when we say these words, it, we, it's almost like we say them along with our fathers and mothers in the faith. And it's almost like we say them along with our children and grandchildren in the faith, that we join in and all around the world, we say, this is the God in whom we trust. So I wanted to just kind of um, orient us that way to the creed, what it is, where it came from. Um, it's, it's not scripture itself, but it, it's, we find this, this wise and helpful common core of faith that we hold on to. And so I want to now just take a few minutes and talk about the beginning of the creed. So we're shifting gears now, and I want to just talk about the beginning of the creed here. So the creed, uh, it starts with these words. You can look at it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I want to, this morning, honestly, I want to I talk about the first two or three words. I believe, I believe in. The word, the I believe, it's repeated three times. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit. You can see this, this, this triune shape to the creed. I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So essentially, what the creed is, it is a, at its, at its heart, it's a statement of faith. Everyone, everywhere, has faith. Everybody you ever meet has faith. Not necessarily faith in Jesus, but they have faith in something. Everyone is living out of a faith position. To be a human being 
is to live in a world of ambiguity and uncertainty. And, and, it's, and, and it's every person everywhere you ever meet is answering the questions, how will I spend my life? What is worth living for? What is good and evil? How should I treat my friends and children? What, this one life I've given, I'm given, what will I spend the seconds I have? Everybody has faith that they, they have an answer to that question. And the way they live is their faith in that. Everybody has faith. If somebody says, if somebody says, um, suppose they say, look, all, the only thing that is real is the physical material universe. There's no such thing as a human soul. Uh, morality is a social construct. Uh, that um, meaning, the only meaning in life is whatever you invent for yourself. If they say that, you, that's not, you can't prove that. That's their, that's their creed. That's their faith position. If they live out of that, that is their faith. Everybody has faith. If, if, somebody says, if somebody says, no, 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 I think there's something more out there. There's some kind of spiritual realm, but we can't really know what it is for sure. I'm not going to say that I believe in Jesus particularly. I believe there's this kind of a spiritual realm, but, and really the spiritual realm, the main thing we engage in spirituality for is to make ourselves happy. And so really my, my creed, my faith in life is, is uh, be happy, be nice, take care of the world. That's, that's what I'm living for. That's what I'm spending my life on. That's a creed. That's a faith position. If, if that's what you live out of, that is your faith. You can't prove that. That's your faith. Everybody has a faith position that they live out of. Everybody has a creed. The question isn't, will you have faith or won't you? The question is, where will you put your faith? What will you spend your life trusting in? That's the question we're faced with. I'll, sometimes I'll meet with people who, um, who are exploring Christianity and they're thinking about it. And, 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 and I've, I've met with people before and they'll say, um, they'll say, Tim, like I can't, like I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in Jesus, but I can't, I'm not willing to trust Jesus until I have absolute intellectual, 100% ironclad certainty and I have all my questions answered. I'm not gonna trust in Jesus until I get this absolute intellectual certainty. Um, then I'll have faith, and I'll think to my and I and, I, and I'll think to myself, and sometimes I'll say like, "But you're already exercising faith every day. You have this whole other faith system that you haven't even examined. You haven't even like questioned. It's not even, and it doesn't. You don't even have good reasons to hold to it. And you live out of that faith system every day, and then you demand this kind of unattainable level of." absolute proof, like you want Jesus to write your name on the side of the moon or something. And, and, and I'm like, don't you see the, like Jesus, it makes total sense of life and come, like this is a much better place to put your trust. Everybody has faith. If you want this idea, if you want to explore it more, this idea that everyone has faith, there's not kind of this neutral ground you can retreat to. I'd encourage the book, um, Invitation to the Skeptical, Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. He does a really good job of unpacking that. Um, I'll have that book up here afterwards. You can take a look at it if you desire. But everyone has faith. So now I want to talk about what does it mean for us to have faith in Jesus? What does it mean for us to say, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? And so I want to look at a text to guide our thinking in this. It's going to be Romans 10, 9, and 10. And the words will be on the screen above here. 
So this is a letter of uh, Paul. He was a leader in the Jesus movement. He was writing to Christians in Rome. And he's ta- he, he talks about um, belief here. And I think uh, it might be helpful to us. So in Romans 10.9, Paul writes, he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that is, Jesus is king over all, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. He talks about it's with your heart that you believe. And I want to talk about this for a second. Um, the word heart there in Greek is cardia. Uh, I think we have a slide with this cardia. And um, heart, when you hear heart, the word heart in English, what pops into your head? When you hear in English, what does heart mean? Soul, love, emotion, right? That's what, I mean, either like muscle in your chest or I think emotion, feelings, okay? In Greek, in Paul's thought, heart or cardia doesn't mean just narrowly emotion. Heart is the whole inner person. So it includes emotion or what you might even say your, your, your desires, your chief desires. But it goes beyond that. Heart for Paul includes thinking. You think with your heart. You desire, you love with your heart. But heart also includes volition or will, decision making. You decide with your heart. You choose with your heart. It's this entire, it's thinking, feeling, desiring, and, and willing. All this inner person is your heart. So he says it's with this, this whole inner person that you believe. And then what does the word believe mean? The word um, in Greek is pistevo, sometimes pr- pronounced pistuo. Um, but it, when we hear belief, I think, again, in English, we tend to think um, intellectual assent, right? To believe means you have an idea that you hold as true in your head. But in, in Greek, in the biblical world, belief is bigger than that. Belief means to rely on or to trust in. That means to believe. So uh, if you're getting ready to rappel off the side of a cliff, you can't just stand back and say, I, I, I believe in that rope, and then stay at the top of the mountain. To believe in the rope means rappelling off the side of the cliff. It means you trust it. You rely on it. And so when Paul says we believe in our hearts, he's not just saying we have this idea that we hold to. He's saying that with our, with our whole selves, we live in committed trust to Jesus as king. With our whole selves, we live, we live in reliance on the resurrection. It's this, this, it, it, this living trust. And... Uh, and it connects back to what I said earlier. Everybody lives in trust of something. Everybody, the way you spend your days demonstrates what you live in trust to. I, I live in trust that I will be able to solve with my own brain every problem that comes to me. I live in trust that me having my own free choice about things is the most important part of the thing in the world. We all live in trust of something. And Paul says to be a, to be a Jesus follower is to live in trust that Jesus is king and he's been raised from the dead. In committed trust to this. Now, you're like, Tim, okay, what, what, why are you parsing out belief and trust? Why, why are you talking about this? Let me, let me kind of get to the nub here. This is why I think it's important. Because I think a lot of times in our day and age, we think to believe in Jesus means to have 
mental intellectual certainty about the things of faith all the time. When biblically, it means to live in committed trust with our whole inner person to Jesus. And those are not exactly the same things. Constant intellectual certainty and ongoing committed trust are not exactly the same things. So like in my own story, I have had seasons where I, I, think, I can think of one a decade or so ago where I had real difficult questions about the, my intellectual certainty about God. It was a season of, is, like, is this God thing real? Like, I've, I've been raised with this, but am I just believing it because I was handed to me? Or do I really, do, do I really in my head think this is all true? Do I want to go in all, all in on this? And if you've ever questioned something you've based your life on, it's scary. I mean, I know for me, it felt like looking over the side of a cliff or into a black abyss, like is, asking these questions. Maybe, maybe for you, it hasn't been faith asking questions about that. Maybe it's been some other, I, I would imagine if you've ever had a career you've been in for a long time and then you've thought about switching it entirely or you've questioned whether you really love this person. Or, but but for, it, was this, it was this really scary thing to ask this, do, do I in my head really hold this as True. But, but what I've come to realize is that, that my faith, to say that my faith, faith is not simply a measure of my intellectual certainty. Faith is that I can have questions, but still live in committed trust to Jesus. Those are not contradictory. It doesn't mean, I ha- like, I, I, I believe Jesus makes the most sense of the world. It's completely reasonable to trust in the resurrection. But it's not that to say that I have faith doesn't mean I never have any questions. It means that I live with Jesus as my highest love and ongoing committed trust in him. It's not just intellectual certainty. It's ongoing living committed trust. Have you, if, if you've lived through this, if you've ever been in a season where you've asked these questions, if you've ever walked with a friend through these kinds of seasons, you'll know what I mean, that, that if, we always, if we always reduce faith to simple intellectual certainty, it becomes like trying to measure day by day. Where's my intellectual certainty today? Where's it today? Where's it today? Which can be very difficult because we live in what many people call a cross-pressured age. We live in a pluralistic age. We are constantly surrounded by people who believe differently than us, reading books by people who believe differently than us, listening to media by people who believe differently than us. And it puts pressure on our intellectual belief systems. But it's true for everybody. Everyone, not, not just Christianity, but if you're an atheist, if you're a Muslim, if you're Hindu, every, because we live in a pluralistic age, everyone's faith system is constantly pressured. It kind of implicitly, when you run into people, believe it, it makes you ask questions about that. And the danger is if we think faith is just intellectual certainty, now we're kind of riding this wave of where's my intellectual certainty today? Where's it today? Where's it today? But scripture says it's, we have good reasons to trust in just Jesus, but, but trusting in Jesus is not just intellectual certainty in a set of ideas. It's living, committed trust in him. Because we can go the... 
this, you flip it around, you can have the problem the other way. I know people who in their heads have this intellectual certainty, but don't actually demonstrate living committed trust. Paul says, faith, we believe in our hearts. Yes, there's this thinking element. It's, we don't, it's not blind faith. We don't turn off our heads. But there's also, it's also a love that it's our highest desire and it's a choosing. This is what I choose to live committed to. We have faith. It's a whole person commitment. And so um, if you want to, the, the other book I brought up here today, if you want to read more about the sense of living in a cross-pressured age and what that's like, there's a really good book by James K.A. Smith, How Not to Be Secular. Um, he writes well on it. I'd encourage to check out that one as well. Faith is not mere intellectual certainty. Faith is ongoing living commitment. And so there will be seasons where we have this easy, confident belief. And those are wonderful seasons. There will also be dark seasons. There's Psalm 88. It's a prayer in the Bible. The last line of Psalm 88, a prayer in Scripture, is darkness is my closest friend. Amen. That's in the Bible. And Scripture says that's faith too. Even when it feels like darkness is my closest friend. Sometimes faith is easy and confident. Sometimes faith is holding on in the dark by your fingernails, but it's saying, I live in committed trust to this Jesus. Some of us have the gift of faith. I love people like that. Some of us, they live in this, faith comes naturally. I love people like they're a gift to the people of God. Some of us are natural questioners. I second guess everything. Honestly, I go to a restaurant, I order my food, the waiter walks away. You know what I'm thinking? I bet I could chase him down in the kitchen and change my order. I bet I'd, I'm not going to like what I ordered. I'm going to go get him right now. I bet I could find him back there in that kitchen. Yeah. Honestly, I second guess this just, and I've come to realize as part of how I'm wired. And that, and, I've, and I reckon that, that impacts how I, I'm a, nat, I, my, my natural wiring is, is this true? Is that true? What if this is true? That's how I'm wired. And I've come to realize it's not helpful for me to like get up every day and take my, where's my intellectual certainty today? 96. Oh, today, 97. You know, I've come that I, I have good reasons to, to believe that Jesus is, that he is king of the universe, that he's raised from the dead, that this makes the most sense in my life. But more than that, I choose to live an ongoing committed trust to this one as king and resurrected Lord. Belief is not mere intellectual certainty. It's ongoing, living, committed trust with our whole inner selves. When we read this creed, we say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We are naming the one in whom we trust, who those who have come before us have trusted in, committed trust, that we choose to live in committed trust to and in the committed trust that we desire to pass on to our children and grandchildren. There's this, I just want to end with this, that um, Jesus, after his resurrection, he is, um, he's instructing his followers on how to make new followers. And in Matthew 28, I think we have this, 
He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what scholars have recognized is this, uh, that he doesn't say baptize them in the names, plural. Jesus says God has a name. The name of God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The name of God is the triune name of God. This community, this self-giving community of love from eternity past is the name of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when we read the creed, we say, I trust in God the Father. I trust in God the Son. I trust in God the Spirit. And it is the passing on of the name of the God in whom we trust. Christianity is not fundamentally, it is not fundamentally uh, signing up for a philosophical system. Yes, there's cognitive content to it, but Christianity at its core is not saying, I, I, you know, I sign on the dotted line of this set of intellectual beliefs. Christianity at its core is living, committed trust in a person. And this person has a name, and his name is Father, Son, Spirit. And the creed is the name of God in whom we trust passed on to us, and the name of the God in whom we trust that we pass forward again. And so, for me, I've gone through seasons of darkness, I've gone through seasons of confidence. I've looked at all sorts of other systems, ways of believing in the world. But for me, I've said the, the, the thing that makes the most sense of this world, makes the most sense of my life, the thing when I look at the story of Jesus that I'm compelled that there is something qualitatively different here. For me, I've come to say that I choose, not just in my head, but more than that, in my heart, with my will, with my action, with my life, to live in committed trust to this God named Father, Son, and Spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, um, we say thank you to you uh, because you are not the God whom we discovered. Uh, you are not the God whom we created. Uh, you are the God who uh, you move to us. You are the God who speaks. And you have uh, named yourself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. You have revealed yourself as the Father who gives a Son, the Son who gives his life and the Spirit who gives new life. Uh, would you, even here this morning, by your Spirit, call forth trust in our hearts towards you? In your name, amen. Thanks for connecting with Hillcrest Chapel. For more info on this and other sermons, go online to hillcrestchapel.com or visit us at 1400 Larrabee Ave in Bellingham, Washington, any Sunday morning, 9 or 11 a.m.